Today on Vertrast, we go deep on the Apple encryption controversy, the big Bezos hack, his phone got hacked. We talk about folding phones. We end talking about what's going on with Sonos and their devices lasting past May. That's next on the Vertrast now. Support for the podcast comes from Canva. Presenting to a group of your colleagues can be nerve-wracking, so why not ease some of that anxiety with Canva? Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and that's it. You're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello and welcome to the Vergecast, the flagship podcast of the technology revolution. Huh? Mm, I'm wow. Eli. I'm Eli. I'm your friend. Dieter Bone is here. I am your... Uh, I, I, I've run out of synonyms for not friend. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Dieter's going to try real hard today. Paul Miller is here. Hello. And Russell Brandom is joining us today. Why, Hello. Russell, you're here uh, because you understand uh, how mathematics can keep information secret. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Or at least the, the the philosophical implications thereof. Yeah, I think I, I'd like to think so. Because there's like a lot. There's, there, like, I think the, the, the problem isn't the math. The problem is where you put the math. It's the location of the math. Okay. We'll, yeah. we'll get there in a second. But, but also <laughs> the location of the map can itself be mapped as mathematical coordinates. Whoa. All right. Yeah, not Let's, to... I'm just going to tell the audience, we're going to talk about folding phones. <laughs> we're going to engage everyone's we're talk latent... about folding space. Latent... Uh, <laughs> wow. Everyone's latent frustration with Sonos. We're going to do the gadget stuff. That's the, coming. The, the news of the week, the thing that dominated, I would say, the, the, the tech foreign policy security axis. Huh? Yeah. Was encryption. Yeah, certainly. And not because anything in particular happened. <laughs> well, some things. Some, like, things, like, conversations happened. Like, people yeah. talked. Yeah. But no yeah. actions were taken. Well, you, so you mean in the Apple side, not the not the Bezos side, right? Because those are the two. There are two, yes. There's yeah. the Apple yeah. iCloud encryption drama, and then there's the what happened to Jeff Bezos' phone drama. Yeah, yeah. But Both think, of which are, like, you know, you gotta you gotta lock it down. Okay, let's start with Apple. The Apple timeline, yeah, is as far as I understand it, the United States government, even into the Obama administration, and now with some particular vigor in the Trump administration, uh, has been begging Apple to unlock iPhones, to provide a backdoor to unlock the iPhone. So it's a thing that the government wants. Well, and and specifically to allow law enforcement when they have a warrant to get into the local storage of the information that's like 
physically located within your phone. Right. Like the it's on the, the hard iPhone. drive right. of the phone. And and right. often if you don't have the passcode that you put in when you unlock the phone, they have done a good job of making it very, very hard to get that. Right. Especially if your passcode is like six digits or more. Yeah. 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 And the the specific instance here is uh, William Barr, Attorney General, has been turning up the heat based on wanting to get into two phones that were related to the the shooting at the Pensacola Naval Base. And as with the last go-round we had with this encryption stuff, it's a little bit unclear if uh, they actually needed Apple to uh, unlock the phones in order to get to the data that they want or if the data was actually important. But... That's like right. that's the thing that started to kick all of this attention off. Right. We want to get into these heat on that. We want to get into these terrorist phones. Apple won't let us. Apple's a bad guy. Give us backdoor. That's usually a, this is how it went years ago with the San Bernardino case. Apple held fast. They didn't do it. It's happening again. A thing that is true that Apple does not deny, does not hide, is that law enforcement can get iCloud backups, and Apple has the key to unlock your iPhone backup encryption. Because they say your your iPhone backup, your crucially iPhone right, not backup. your not, not your iPhone iPhone, but your iPhone backup. Yes, yes, yes. which so contains everything that's on your iPhone. It, well, but in, um, except for that pretty window much. of time, right? That mm. so, if, so, the, if the criminal sends a text message, like in twenty minutes, I'm going to go rob the store. That, that doesn't yeah. hit the backup until they plug their phone I'll also in. say, in, in tangible terms, so I don't know 100% the details of the Pensacola case because it's still sort of coming out, but in San Bernardino, it was specifically eight days. So they had the iPhone backup that had been made eight days before the attack, and it seemed like maybe he had turned the f- like backups off because he decided he was going to do horrible things. But like, the whole case, they were like, well, it was this terrorist's phone. And it was really like, do you think that he was talking to ISIS in this specific week yeah. immediately before he went crazy? And, like, I-, I do think because this stuff is important and these, like, conversations are important and you have to draw the line somewhere and there's all these principal things, it is the conversation usually skates past how much of this data is already accessible to law enforcement. Right, because it's in the iCloud backup. Yeah. Okay. That that complex yeah. situation is just the context of the things that kicked off the conversation this week. That's the background. Government wants to get in the phones. Apple gives them iCloud backups. There's usually a delta between the backup and what's on the phone today. Right? That's yeah. the layout. Reuters publishes a piece this week saying Apple was going to fully encrypt. That's the wrong phrase. We're going to talk about why that's the wrong phrase. (laughs) Uh, Apple is going to fully encrypt iCloud backups such that only you, the user, will have the key, no longer be able to turn that over to law enforcement, thus precluding law enforcement from seeing your backups. Well, no, no. That piece, people had said that right after San Bernardino. Yeah. And I was very skeptical at the time because I was like, this is going to get them in a world of hurt. Right. And then Reuters, well, yeah, so continue. Yeah, so the Reuters piece is Apple was going to do it. This is very much in contention. Apple told the FBI they were going to do it, and the FBI freaked out and Apple didn't do it. Apple, for its part, absolutely disputing the idea that it ever tells anyone about future products and services. (laughs) Right, like they're just like, that's... You know how, like, you're, we would send them emails. We're like, we heard new AirPods are coming out, and we get 
either dead icy silence or we get <laughs> Apple does not comment on products like upcoming products and services. This is like, did you tell the FBI about encryption and Apple's the same statement that we would get about like, hey, are there newer products coming out? They're like, we do not comment on upcoming products and services. Yeah. So that's but kind the, of their it, position. Like we would, yeah. we would never do that. It is true that there had been reporting back, like Russell said, around the San Bernardino time uh, uh, in the Wall Street Journal that Apple was probably thinking about strengthening, uh, getting rid of the, its own key to get to your iCloud backup. Okay, so so I just want to make the two quick notes on this. One, I do Where's think— Where's the math? Well, no, no. This is—I I think because of the architecture of the systems— I think it was reasonable to look at iCloud circa like 2012 and say some security engineer at Apple is building this in a way so that if they want to make it so that only a user can unlock it, they will that will fit with the way they've architected this, right? So that, I, I think, is a plausible claim. That is a far cry from being like, Apple is going to do this. Yeah. It's like this guy at Apple is sort of likes it when things work this way. The other thing is, it's not like they really had to ask the FBI yeah. to know how the FBI would feel about this. Like, it was kind <laughs> of, like, the FBI's been pretty clear about it. Like, anyone reading the piece was like, well, that's going to piss off the FBI. So, like, I don't know why that, I, yeah. that feels like less of a sticking point where it was just like they thought about it and the guy's like, you're going to get me in trouble with the FBI. What if we don't do that? Like, I that seems plausible to me. I would say Apple, they are in an uneasy truce in a position that is maybe not where they wanted to be or anyone wanted to be, which is they're going to hold the line on a backdoor into the hardware of the phone. That's yep. they, that. Yep. That's where they are. They do not want to create encryption backdoors to the phone. They are in a position where a lot of people back up their phones. They have a plausible story for why they need to hold on to that key, which is people often forget their passcodes. Yeah. So they can restore the phone from the backup because they have the key as well. That's like, it's very plausible. That's a very normal thing that happens. I forgot my passcode. I go to the Apple store. Can you help me? Yes, but your data is going to be four days old because that's your last backup. But that's the best we can do. Uh, we keep your stuff private. We're the privacy company. So they've got this like uneasy truths that also gives them an out to the FBI. We're helping you anyway. Don't, don't move the line further. So that's like the Reuters piece talking about Apple's internal dilemma about moving the line further. Who knows if they went to the FBI or not, right? Then Donald Trump started talking. <laughs> like, that's just a real thing that happened uh, this week. Gave an interview to Joe Kernan on CNBC at Davos, an incredible environment for him to be talking <laughs> about encryption. And he said, Apple has to help us. I'm very strong on it. They have the keys to so many criminals and criminal minds and we can do things. We can do things can, to their criminal we minds. We can do things. And then this is uh, Trump. He's like a transactional guy. He said, I've given them waivers uh, around tariffs. I've given them waivers because it's a great company and it made a big difference. And he said, I'm not concerned about my relationship with Cook. You're dealing with drug lords and you're dealing with terrorists. And if you're dealing with murderers, I don't care. So the, the deal that Trump is very clearly putting on the table is, hey, I helped you with the trade war that I started, but in exchange for that, I want you to unlock the phone. So now Apple is in this very uneasy position, I think, where they, they've arrived at the, I don't think by design position of, we're not going to unlock the phone, but we'll turn over the iCloud to you. 
And now Trump is like, criminal minds. Unlock the right. Phone. And and this time, like the last time it was, well, if, if, uh, if it really starts escalating, there'll be a huge lawsuit that'll eventually make its way to the Supreme Court. And like that, that's the consequence. But now there's a, there's that consequence on top of the consequence that uh, Trump will just like undo the tariff deal that he made with Tim Cook. And uh, all of a sudden, like, because Apple made this choice, well, iPhone prices will and go by the way, tomorrow. Just to, to make that even clearer, because there's, a, of course, a tweet. The Trump tweet was, we are helping Apple all of the time on trade, all capital letters, and so many other issues, yet they refuse to unlock phones used by killers, drug dealers, and other violent criminal elements. They have to step up to the plate and help our great country. Uh, now, exclamation point. I'll just, I'm going to be an insufferable, okay, killers, sure, terrorists, drug dealers, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like maybe it's. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. Um, so, so okay, a thing about just the tariffs, just to be specific about what we're talking about, Apple did get, there were some carve-outs that they asked for, there were others that they didn't, but the real thing that Trump has given them is they were toying with the idea of putting tariffs on computers and phones. And so all the Apple products that were hit by tariffs were sort of accessories. It was the possibly the wheels on the Mac Pro, but like that level of thing. Uh, and it wasn't like the iPhone. It yeah. wasn't the MacBook. So, and that's a huge deal. It would have been disastrous for them. And, and also like the deal is still preliminary. Like it seems like things aren't escalating, but that kind of stuff can change. So it is true that there is this cat, there is this thing that could happen in trade that would be catastrophic to Apple that Trump has mostly avoided. I think like because like he and Tim Cook hang out all the time. Well, before this interview on CNBC, had he literally had had breakfast with Tim Cook in Davos. Right. I, I there are like obviously lots of re like why does anything happen? But it seems <laughs> odd. Like it would be very it would be hugely damaging, not just to Apple to say we're going to put a fifteen percent tax on every phone that is imported from China to America, like. That would be a big deal. That would be a problem for people beyond just Tim Cook. Yeah. And like Tim Cook happens to be the guy who really cares about that and is standing next to Trump. But it it's it's weird to phrase that as like I did Apple a favor. It's like, well, you did like people who use phones a favor. I feel like you are maybe reading too much into this very explicit tweet where he's like, I did you a favor. Uh, oh, no, he's literally saying that. I'm just like, I don't know if that's really what happened. Anyway. That, again, this is all just the context. Still, like that, that the Reuters article happened, the Trump tweet and the Trump comment happened. What that led to is what I would say is a, a pretty remarkable conversation about what data Apple actually has, where it's encrypted, what the government can see. And it turns out, and I don't think this is by any fault of Apple, it is just so necessarily complex that I don't think most people understand that like Apple's billboard that said what happens on your iPhone stays on your iPhone is just like incorrect on its face because right. a huge amount of what happens on your iPhone uh, is then transmitted to iCloud, which Apple will like happily turn over to the police if they get a, a warrant. And that I think is much more confusing for people to understand. There's also, uh, we should have this conversation an enormous problem with the language we're using 
to describe these things. This is the is it? It's not the so the fully encrypted. In I said headline, fully encrypted. Like, in that they were going to fully encrypt iCloud, and it's like, well, it was already encrypted, and also there's a lot of just like basic infrastructure that needs to be encrypted, where it's like I'm using encryption to send my sort of credit card number to Everlane because I don't want like the guy working at my ISP to be able to steal my identity. But he definitely and, wants to. Right. But like that's encrypted. It's not right. like a problem for the FBI that I'm using. Like so it's sort of tricky. As Dieter says, it's where the math goes. Yeah. And like, does a number exist or is it, does it, does a, can a concept be real? And if so, shouldn't it be in a physical location? Why did I walk into this with you? It's like Dieter's like opening the door. He's like gesturing me in. I know what's going to happen in the room. And I was like, ah, I'm going into the room. Uh, in, in, in the world of Bitcoin, the word that they use is custodial. You have yes. non-custodial wallets. So I have a non-custodial Bitcoin wallet, as in I control the private key, and I'm the only person who's ever held that private key. And, and so nobody could, even if they wanted to, even if Trump wanted to, he couldn't get my Bitcoin. Uh, well, what if he charged you tariffs I have that, on I have that bumper sticker, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, a uh, custodial <laughs> wallet is something like um, like Coinbase, you know, like typically exchanges have a, a wallet. And so they are holding the private keys. And so theoretically, they can be compelled by a government to hand over those keys, which is why people like non-custodial wallets. And then there are there are sort of like semi-custodial, there are like gray areas where, where you get into it. And so Apple's obviously in a gray area where you are a custodian of your private keys. They are in the secure element of your iPhone. And that secure element is designed to be only accessed by someone with like with your pen or, or your face or whatever. Uh, and then um, uh, they also have a secondary set of keys at the cloud that can also decrypt the same data, the backup data. Yeah, not the, but not the phone. And this is, I think, the level of complexity here, because we tried to make the world's simplest how-to, mm -hmm. although it had a great headline in the end from Barbara, how to FBI-proof your phone. And yeah. it was just like, we're just going to explain to you what the different encryption settings do and how to end up in the most private state. We ended up going back and forth. We had, you know, we, we had to send a bunch of questions to Apple that had to come back. We had to understand what the answer is. I ended up on a with a whiteboard drawing yeah. all of the states your phone could be in with the different mm. iCloud and messages and iCloud toggles. Well, the messages thing, like, added, it basically took the, the basic level of complexity and then multiplied it, right? Because, right. like, the, as however many different states of, you know, encryption you can have and access to keys and backups you can have on messages, multiply that by, by your phone, and you just, like, you have a million different options. And the, and the vocabulary problem here makes it even worse. So let me try to do this. And hopefully along the way, everyone will understand why the language isn't there. And I, I don't even think custodial or non-custodial, like, that's pretty good. It still doesn't quite encapsulate the last turn of the screw of pain. Uh, yeah. Okay. So the first state is you have everything turned off, right? No iCloud backup, no messages in the cloud. By the way, Apple never talks about messages in the cloud. It is off by default. They built this whole thing and they... I don't know. They, they they do not want people to use it, as far as I can tell. <laughs> I think one of the reasons they don't want people to use it is because when you turn it on, uh, the government Their can't get it. Their ads are, are false. <laughs> uh, no, when you, when you turn it on, the government can't get it, right? Like, theoretically, your messages become end-to-end -end encrypted between all your devices. 
but let me let me start. The first state is everything is off. Yeah. The government can't get into your phone without your passcode. Or they can, you know, go to one of these hacking groups, which we will talk about, and maybe they will find a way into your phone. But there's no there's no front door into your phone that isn't your In password. this case, the math is on your phone. The math is on your phone. The second case, you turn on iCloud backup. That's the primary case that we've been talking about. Your phone remains locked. You have to pay some group or the NSA to hack into the physical hardware of your phone, but Apple will turn over the key to your backup. Your text messages are in that backup. Your iMessages are in that backup. So the government can get your iMessages. The third the math is on your phone and it's in app, on Apple servers and Tim Cook knows how to solve the equation. Right. Okay. Sure. Just going to keep <laughs> going. The third case is you've got iCloud backup on and you've got messages in the cloud on. This is, Paul, where the, it, it's just so dumb, the outcome. Yeah. Your iMessages moved to be encrypted end-to-end, so only you have the key on your phone, which the government can't get to. Your iCloud backup still remains with Apple having the key. They can turn it over. But you know what gets backed up to your iCloud backup? The key to your messages in the cloud. Uh, in this case, the math belongs. <laughs> it lives in your heart. The math so the, deep in your soul so is where it comes from. can get your iCloud backup, decrypt right. it, get your key, and then go and unlock your message backup. Right. That is, I think, not the outcome anyone was anticipating. <laughs> Okay, so I have— That's very confusing. I have a theory as to why this is in terms of, like, Apple Kremlinology. Yeah. So, like, I think we see this in a lot of different Apple products where Apple will kind of get together and they're like, we're going to make a phone. We want it to be really expensive. What can we do that will— allow it to be really expensive. Here's this guy who does a lot of cool camera stuff, and we're just going to sort of put him in a room, and he's going to do nutso stuff with the camera. And then at the end, they come out with the keynote, and they're like, look at this camera. So security is kind of like that, I think, where they got, like, really intense people who are like, yeah, like, I'm going to design this end-to-end hardware-coded messaging system, and it's going to be completely airtight and no one's going to be able to get the messages under any circumstances. And then they're like, okay, cool. We want to, like, what if someone wants their messages? Like, they lose their phone and they want to back it up. And he's like, that's not sort of what I did this for. <laughs> <laughs> and then they're like, okay, you've done great. Now we're going to talk to this other guy. <laughs> and I just, I, I do think there is, like, there are people within Apple who are trying to build extremely robust and secure systems. And often they're, like, given the leeway to do that. And you end up being like, wow, like, iMessage encryption is really impressive. But they don't have control over what is built, like, once it's out there. And Apple is always and only focused on, like, consumer experience. So they're just like backups. People want them. Do it. Like, and, and so you get these in from some angles, like really airtight systems that then have weird holes punched in them that it's like, why would you ever design it this way? Yeah. And I do think that the primary person who's going to get locked out of your phone is you. Like mm-hmm. the most likely scenario with all this encryption and all the security is that you, the user, will just forget your passcode and be locked out of your phone. I hear all of this, and I want to be the most paranoid person ever, but I also know that I kind of want Apple to save my ass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? Like, I don't know, like, 
I, like every time I do tech support for my family, I'm like, what's your password? And they're like, I don't know. And like, that's most of the task. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's yeah. like, now I'm going to reset your password for you. <laughs> Please write it down this time. So I, there, that's like the, the one state. Then there's a state where you turn off iCloud and turn on messages in the cloud. I don't know who gets there, but in that state, the government can't get your text messages. If really? that's what, yeah. Okay. Because well, then good. that's that's end to end encrypted in messages, but there's no iCloud backup for them to retrieve the key from. But how would you describe that third state? How does your Mac get at the messages if the the key stays on your iPhone? Aha. So uh, this is actually really interesting. Yeah. When they send an iMessage. So so if I send an iMessage to your phone number, Apple, it's going to Apple's servers to see which IP addresses it's being sent to. And it has a log of all of your devices. And so it sends encrypted copies of the message, specifically encrypted to the key associated with that device to all of the different devices simultaneously. This is also like this causes various problems if people switch from iOS to Android for some reason. Who would ever uh, do such a thing? I know. Uh, but but it is... And, and Okay, so the cool thing is that it's tied to the key within the secure enclave on the iPhone, which they can do because they make their own chips. That is not true for MacBooks, although it's another one where it's like, you could just start making your chips and make the... Like, iMessage that much more secure at any time, so you're sort of like... Clearly, someone was thinking about doing this at some point. Whether they actually get that into the end zone ever is kind of up for grabs. But again, there's like the cranky encryption guy in some like portion of the glass ring of Apple <laughs> who is like, guys, we got to do this. We got to get the secure enclave on the on the laptop. Yeah. So it's just extraordinarily like I'm saying, I don't think they're trying to hide the ball. I think even trying to describe the current set of possibilities has taken us 25 minutes. Yeah. And like it well, took with that Barbara post that she wrote, which is great. You should read it and send it to, all, to everyone you know. Like that, even that is very long and involves a lot of screenshots with arrows just to be like, <laughs> look at this, look at this part of the interface. The, I, I, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt that they're not hiding the ball, but at the same time, is it kind of the case that with a warrant, the government can basically get at any and all information in the cloud right now. Yes. Yeah. That is, uh, and, and unless, that is, unless that is a legal I personally rule. encrypt it. Well, no, so, perso- so, so they can get the encrypted part. The, the thing you do is you encrypt it in the cloud and you hold the key. They can get, at some point, the feds show up to the server farm and they're like, we're feds. Here's <laughs> the warrant give us everything on this. And the server farm's like, okay, if it's encrypted, then they have the encrypted data, but they don't have the key. So I can just do that in Google Drive now. But like anything in my Gmail, like basically any Google product, like yes, (laughs) all of that is is accessible. Although intriguingly, there are Android backups that are secured by Google's Titan security chip and it's down to the, like on their server, it's encrypted. Google doesn't have the key. And if you go in and try and hack the encryption uh, in the same way your phone will erase your data if people punch in the wrong passcode too many times. The Titan security key will do that with your backup in Google's cloud. That is cool. That's neat. See, that's surprising to me just because it really does feel like the sort of thing like nobody wants to poke the bear and actually truly secure the data from the government. 
Well, I mean, it doesn't matter because it's Google, so they've got 50,000 other ways to find out everything <laughs> about you. So whatever is secure on that server kind of doesn't matter, but it's there if you want okay. it. Okay. Yeah. Right. But Paul, that is a pretty good point. Like, there are a lot of reasons that you want the government to look at a bunch of stuff. So, Well, also, th there are, like, specific legal requirements, right? Like, if you're holding right. data, like— you there's a law that says you have to put it up and so yeah and you know they'll cart you off if you don't at a certain point but wait right. you were so saying. like i don't know like there's um the csai child sexual abuse imagery right that gets thrown around these networks all the time people are like you should do something or we have to catch the people there's not a lot of political will in the world to say the government shouldn't have access to every resource to go after those kinds of criminals but it means they need the evidence. And so, like, that is a deep when, – when I talk to security folks, that is, like, one of the deepest tensions that they are always talking about. There are bad actors in the world. We actually want the cops to go after them. But we need to keep everybody safe. Like, how on earth do we balance it? And right now, the thing that is happening is, at least as far as I can tell, like, the four-digit passcode is, like, kind of weak and can be broken – so everyone just sort of relying on companies like GrayShift and a hacking team and NSO group to be able to celebrate, to show up and be able to like get past the the 10 try activation lock and then brute force a four digit passcode. That's I don't think that was the outcome anyone planned. Like if you sat down and designed the policy, you would not be like most people will use weak passcodes and the government will get into it and that will forestall the problem for another round, which is yeah. more or less where we are. And like, but how do you solve the problem of right? But like, the, the the government has a right to break into my house if they have a warrant, but they don't have a right to tell me like I can't have locks. Yeah, and house. I think that's why this is like a math problem. Well, I also think you know you start saying, oh, there are these bad guys. You know, we're 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 using this to crack down on sexual abuse. But then eventually, as these things get opened up, it it sort of goes to more and more minor crimes until eventually you're using it to. After, yeah, people who are just selling drugs and <laughs> just trying drugs. to provide for their family. And the, the whole problem here is that the discourse that we are having about this issue is Donald Trump tweeting and Apple um, Apple is, in fact, doing – like speaking in some nuanced ways in some places, especially in like their documentation. But the, the vast majority of people's understanding of Apple's position on this is a big-ass billboard that says what happens on your iPhone stays on your iPhone. So yeah. like – the the de the actual like debate that we are having as like a nation is like so far afield of the actual complexity of the issue that my level of hope that we're going to land at a place that seems like nuanced and reasonable is very low. Yeah, and I think that billboard did not do them any favors. Like that billboard just created the opportunity for everyone to constantly attack them because it turns out most of the things that happen on your iPhone go to iCloud. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> It's pretty true, actually. <laughs> like they don't stay, like even well, in the, also, I mean, even if they don't go to the government, the, they flatly do not stay on your iPhone. Well, also, it's literally not like the whole point <laughs> of the device is to communicate with other things. <laughs> That's the other thing. Like if we're talking about this in the context of like only using Apple services on an iPhone, but yeah. like you're using an app. The app knows. Like the app is also storing this data somewhere. So it's like it's a networked device. You can right. only. Yeah. Let's take a break and come back and use that to transition to Jeff Bezos. Support for this podcast comes from Canva. They say Rome wasn't built in a day, but you know what you can get built in a day? Your creative deck. You can generate creative decks to use for all your important presentations, 
with Canva. Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. You want a sales presentation for a tech company? Done. Create an employee onboarding plan? No problem. Just type it in and watch Canva work its magic. You'll have generated options in seconds. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver at work. So whatever you do at your job, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. It's AI for every department. It's easy to learn. It's even easier to use. And because it's built in Canva presentations, you can stay focused on the task at hand with no app switching. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Design for work. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back. Russell, walk us through the Jeff Bezos story. Okay. Um, a man is born. <laughs> a while ago, Jeff Bezos, out of the blue, announced that he and his wife were getting divorced in like a weirdly public way. It wasn't really clear why. Later, it became clear that he was having an affair, possibly with his wife's knowledge. It was anyway, things were splitting up. And the National Enquirer had learned about it. And he believed that they had tried to extort him, but it was this sort of massively acrimonious and bitter thing. And there was, in particular, this real question. They had gotten photos and messages that he had sent to his mistress and these very just very private things that, like, you don't normally see from powerful people and were kind of embarrassing. And sort of they ended up coming out because the National Enquirer had them. So there's this real question of, like, how did they get them? So fast forward a little bit, there were over time, like a couple people had some theories. They were like, oh, it's the mistress's brother, or maybe he got hacked by Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is actually kind of the the overlapping point here because that was also, they were also deeply implicated in the Pensacola shooting. But um, we found out today, basically, well, this week, that there is very good reason to believe that he was not just hacked by Saudi Arabia, but specifically was exchanging WhatsApp messages with Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, and the crown prince sent him a message that had spyware on it, and that was what compromised his phone and leaked all these messages, and then it was sort of relayed to the National Enquirer for complex political reasons. It is the assumption. Like, there's, there's like, there's, there's, like 99% it's true, but there's like, they never found apparently direct evidence of the malware. They just, he got a weird video and then like two minutes later, it started exporting a ton of data out yeah. somewhere. Yeah. So, right. so the thing that I would say, which is kind of in the background, a lot of this coverage is, so the new thing that we have is there is this report, which Motherboard obtained and published, which great work on their part, that is basically Jeff Bezos's personal security firm consultants, the sort of Liam Neeson and Taken type people who sort of 
he was like, something's wrong with my phone. His name is Gavin DeBecker, and he does kind of look like Liam Neeson. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But so they are not like, if, if the question is like, was the DNC hacked by China? Like, there is a group of, there's like a kind of company you bring in. This is not really that kind of company. So the analysis that they did was not like sophisticated by the standards of cybersecurity investigation. And like, that doesn't mean that there's nothing there. It's just like, this is sort of the, this is like the entry level analysis. And there's still a lot of other stuff that we need to look into to really nail it down. And the thing that connects these stories to the earlier stories is apparently uh, Jeff Bezos reportedly forgot his password for iTunes. Really? That is what I read in one place, yes. That is amazing. That's not the thing I think connects the stories. So the thing that connects the stories is uh, state actors getting access to the contents of your phone. Yeah. Well, right. And this is a classic, like a Snowden revelation, is that like even if you are the best at encrypting everything when it's on your disk and over the wire, uh, if you ever want to look at the encrypted information, it has to be decrypted by the client application. Um and in this case, that would be WhatsApp. Um, and so we don't, I guess, know specifically the vulnerability, but WhatsApp has had a bunch of very similar vulnerabilities to what is, is Bezos is describing, where like um, you do a video call to somebody and that will cause um, like a buffer overflow or something and then allow that person to exfiltrate data. Or um, there there was one with like a GIF uh that would uh, like cause like a double free and then they could exfiltrate data. One possible defense against this is, is some of the permission stuff that like Google's been working on where you have apps have way less access to everything on, on your, on your phone. But it's pretty obvious that WhatsApp is going to have access to WhatsApp stuff. Yeah. So I mean, I think, I, I think the real key here is, the, there's an operating system level protection that is like WhatsApp does not need. I mean, WhatsApp actually does need like access to your photo roll, but it doesn't need access to all of the data on your phone. But of course, if you're making spyware, you would like it to have access to all the data on your phone. So we're kind of getting back to the same iCloud thing. Like it's the same people at Apple who are working to maintain like it's really hard to make sure that the video that you're playing doesn't have something spooky in it. Like that's just the, what you want is once the spooky thing starts, it's isolated. You, you notice it, you can stop it and you can keep it from getting the other parts of the phone. But that means you need to sort of maintain the system integrity of the operating system. And that's exactly what you would be breaking when you're sort of making the, the back door for, for, uh, you know, the FBI. Yeah. So uh, the argument that we were having right before we started was, is this, are these stories like deeper related or are they different? Here's my argument for why they're different. Yeah. I think we, we've made some number of arguments for why they're similar. Does it have to do with the location of the math? It does have to do with the location of the math. The first story, the I- Apple iCloud encryption, Trump wants to unlock the phone, is a story about an individual hardware unlock. How do we unlock this phone? Right? Because we've made abundantly clear they can get to iCloud. That is disconnected from is there a market for exploits in the world such that a rogue government can go buy one from, I think the reports of the NSO group, 
and then yeah. use that. Although we should say NSO group denies the any involvement. And and I think Facebook is now suing the NSO group over this. They already were. Yeah. WhatsApp WhatsApp has been suing the NSO group uh, over a vulnerability that they found and didn't tell WhatsApp about, which is kind of standard operating procedure, but WhatsApp's not thrilled about it. Anyway, continue. Right. So the, the, the existence of exploits for individual apps like WhatsApp or Gmail or like a rogue PDF that like cracks your Windows PC, which is like the classic case, is almost like secondary to whether the government can hardware unlock a phone. And so this conversation is just so complicated. It it almost seems like everything is the same. But these are actually really different ideas. Uh, well, th- there is the... Security let's vulnerability. Let's say you is, are. Let's say you're the, the 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 drug dealer who got swept up into the reckless abandon of the government, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And they for the drugs you, that I was selling. Yeah, and then they get your phone. Uh huh. Right, and there's no way to hardware unlock your phone, but they have a WhatsApp message that'll do it for them. It's still mm-hmm. not going to work because they got to unlock the phone to open the message. Like they're different. They're just like Potential, totally different. The, the, the goal, the end goal. Is to exfiltrate, exfiltrate, <laughs> ex, exfiltrate my data. It. Yeah, they want my data, and it's encrypted, and I hold the keys. Uh, in this case, how do they get my data? Now, if it's Bezos, they send him a video message. If it's me, and I've got all the drugs, apparently they ask Tim Cook to decrypt, you know, like my iCloud backup, or or to invent a backdoor that dissolves the whole point of encryption or something like that. Uh, but the, the, the end goal, the, they're ju- these are just different means to the same end goal, which is exfiltrating data. Yeah, but I think that the actual difference in mechanism is critically important to the, 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 it the is goal. True. I mean, so, so I would say the other way you can zoom out and sort of rub your eyes until it gets blurry enough that it looks the same is... The answer for all of this is, one, to have the data in as few places as possible, accessible by as few, like, actors and programs as possible. And then, two, to have systems that are robust in terms of not, like, just flying off the handle when some unexpected program runs into them. And both of those, the question of, like, how plentiful is the data going to be? How many places is it going to be? And then how sort of sturdy are these systems going to be? Like, the FBI, part of the reason security people don't like the FBI, even though they would like to, you know, many of them don't like drug dealers either, is that the FBI is pushing both of those in the wrong direction. Right, the the NSA hoards zero days. Right, right, like the sort of hack that broke WhatsApp. So the NSA hoards zero days so that the government can ostensibly go after bad guys by hacking into them. Right, but and- by by not divulging those zero days, everybody, including Jeff Bezos, who we know and love, is vulnerable. Well, to, we know to hacks. Do you think when Bezos realized he's been hacked, he'd be like, "If only the Fire Phone had worked out. <laughs> if only I ran this platform." Uh, no, Paul, you're correct, and I the. I've heard this argument made. I don't know if I buy it, but it's if Apple was more compliant in decrypting the phone, the government would no longer hoard zero days. They would actually disclose more vulnerabilities <laughs> uh, and everyone would be safe. I've, I didn't say I believed it. Well, that's not even that's, the same. <laughs> the NSA already, like the NSA already has their stuff. They could get into the phone. <laughs> I didn't say I believed it, but I guess let me, let me say that one yeah. other way. Apple's noncompliance is accelerating the market for firms like 
hacking team and celebrate and whatever to exist because there's demand that Apple could erase. Do I believe that? I don't, but I've heard well, that argument made. And one of, what, one of the ways to think about security is, and this is why Bezos is pretty much screwed no matter what, is that how high, like it, how much is someone willing to spend to attack me? And then can I raise the barrier to being attacked higher than that amount? So if someone's willing to spend zero cents to attack me, you know, it's probably pretty unlikely I'll be hacked. If someone's willing to spend $100, it's a lot more likely. And so I have to do a lot more work on my part to defend against it. But Bezos, I mean, I don't know all of the end goal of attacking Bezos, but you could conceive of a scenario where it's worth millions of dollars to attack Bezos. And and zero days are like $100,000. I would just point out that like the other dystopian aspect of this is that Jeff Bezos has resources at his disposal that are on the scale of a nation state. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. probably not actually as much as like the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, but like in terms of like can an individual defend themselves against a nation state, like Jeff Bezos would probably be my pick for like the individual <laughs> who could. <laughs> <laughs> and right. I think that's part of why this is so like weird is that if he can't, then that actually does suggest that like there is something there wasn't like a like a box that he could throw money into where the more money he threw into it, the more secure he got because they're all just the same tools. He's using WhatsApp like everyone else. Yeah, it is. There is just an element of comedy that like he got like a meme from the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia and opened it <laughs> and like his phone got hacked. Like there's there's just an element of that where it's like it actually doesn't matter how much money you have. There, like the memes will kill us all. There's, like, a, there's an al- alternate story where it, Bezos is mistaken and it wasn't the video from the prince. And the prince is just so sad that Bezos thinks his funny meme was the <laughs> Yeah, uh, there's look, that's the claim that's being made. The timeline lines right up. And like who would have access to a zero day like this? Like it's a lot yeah. of circumstantial yeah. evidence, but it's like a an, a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think people are going to look more at the FTI report. I think one of the frustrating things about cyber attacks generally, and I don't think this is going to be an exception, is that like a lot of times you just never get to 100% attribution and there's always some hole to poke in it, which makes it sort of deniable. But I don't know that we're going to get more sure than we are now. Yeah. Anyhow, that's a lot of hacking talk. Yeah. It's my favorite kind of talk. (laughs) Russell, thank you so much for for joining (laughs) us. We are somehow going to seamlessly transition to folding phones. Nice. If you'd like to stay along for that ride. No, I'm going to run in the opposite (laughs) direction. All right. Thanks, man. All right. Dieter Bone. Hi. How you doing, buddy? I'm awesome. Uh, there's a lot of phones that fold in half. There are a week. few phones that fold in half, but there's about to be a lot of them, yeah. I think, is the, the lesson that we're learning this week. Do you want to start with the Surface Duo or do you want to start with the actual folding screens? So the we can just do it kind of in order. So uh, we have the uh, Moto Razor. Uh, they said there wasn't a delay, but it was a delay. Uh, sales start on the 26th, and they're going to be available on February 6th. Um, and so I'm excited to uh, see how that thing goes, especially because, A, uh, Motorola has been very cocky about uh, its reliability, and so 
hopefully they're right. And B, it's a Verizon exclusive. And Verizon has two ways of doing exclusives. They have like, it's cool and exclusive and they put a lot of money behind it. And then they have like what they did with Palm, which is, yeah, yeah make a phone for us, please. We'll see if it works. If it doesn't, whatever. Um, presumably this will be somewhere in the middle, but how much effort Verizon puts into marketing the Razor uh, uh, with its exclusive is going to say a lot about their confidence and whether or not it's any good. There's a third option, the mm. we're going to hug you to death option, which yeah. is you made a cool phone. We would prefer that no one else uses it to steal market share from us. So we're going to buy it from you as an exclusive and then never talk about it again. Yeah. Which yeah. is a real, like, when you say like, is there going to be marketing support? Like, the third option plays out way more than you think it does. Because when push comes to shove, Verizon's like, buy one Galaxy S10, get 45 additional ones for a dollar. Right. And that's like, that's yeah. that's where they're built to go. Is there a possible world where this is a sensation like the the Razor before it? Yes. I think that's an extraordinarily possible world because I continue to believe this. Exact, like Executives that I've talked to do not agree with me. So take it for what it's worth. But even we asked Panos Panay about this, about the duo. I think folding screens, two screens, it is a form factor change on the order of like the big smartphone phone form factor change. Like not on the order of like the iPhone, but on the order of people really wanted a bigger screen phone. And for a minute, Apple was losing share to Samsung because they didn't have a big phone. And now everybody has big. It's like it's in that uh, zone. That's a good comparison. Yeah. Right, it's like it's a form factor change. It's a hardware change. The phones are going to look different. That drives way more consumer demand than anything else. We know it to be true. So it's true. Every time Apple redesigns the iPhone in China, their sales go up, right? Because those customers can switch easier because they're not locked in that message. Wow, I really, that's every Vergecast <laughs> keyword all at once. Um, so I think this is like, it's great for uh, morning TV shows, right? It's the hot new gadget. On yeah. the Today Show, it's like, what are the coolest gifts for Christmas? Have you seen the Motorola Razor? It's back. It unfolds. Oh, my God. The screen. Like, it's that product. And so yeah. I think, like, it will be a sensation of hype, at least, whether or not Motorola can make enough, whether or not the screen immediately blows up in your face. Like, many question marks after that. But, like, in terms of consumer awareness, they're, they're just going to get it just because it looks different. And I think it's yeah. great. Like, and it's because it's the Razor, right? Right, it looks like a razor. there'll be a bunch of old people. They're like, "Oh, I had a razor once." There'll be a bunch of young people going, "What's what? What is all? What are all the old people talking about?" Yeah, and you know, it'll be a confluence of attention. Um, the other thing is, more leaks are coming out about the Samsung Galaxy Z Flip. The uh, a bunch of these are coming from uh, Max Weinbach over at XDA Developers, and the big one that I think we should be paying attention to is apparently the screen is going to have uh, glass. It's going to be a glass screen, uh, and it will have a little crease on it. Samsung ultra-thin glass, which has a crease, is what he says. A dynamic AMOLED display. So it could be our very first glass folding phone. Which would presumably not scratch as easily. Right, as but it also presumably will like have a pretty visible crease, which we're starting to go away on uh, some of the other phones. So like the Razer in particular, because of the, like, in the hands-ons, it seemed like the crease wasn't very present. Uh, we actually have to review it to see if that turns out to be the case. Um, so this might bring back a little bit of the crease. So we'll we'll be looking for that on February 11th at Samsung Unpacked. Yeah. What if the crease is actually just Samsung has figured out how to do an ultra-thin OLED that folds around and the screen goes edge-to-edge edge and you open it 
Do you know what I mean like like it's a, a screen, like it's a it's, glass it's screen, two screens and then where they, they abut each other in that in a perfect way? Because that would solve no, the folding so. problem. Yeah. Do you think they I mean, got, that's you think they got my... to folding glass? Yeah, I think they, they. I mean, I hope so. We'll see. I don't know. Maybe it's glass, and then there's like a little plastic thing, and then it's glass again. That would I be feel, amazing. I feel like if the if the crease is really noticeable when you're watching Netflix or YouTube, then they might as well have done a Microsoft and just done two screens. But yeah. if it, if but if it's not. I feel like you get best of both worlds. So this brings us to Microsoft, which who? Yeah, this uh, I I'm excited about this, and it's not only because they've proposed new uh, web standards for CSS and JavaScript, but that is also why I'm excited. Yeah, <laughs> uh, they have put out an SDK and an emulator for the Duo, the Android phone. Uh, they've also put out that they're going to have more stuff for Windows 10X. They put out those web standards, and they've put out sort of their rules for all the different postures that uh, an app can show up in on these devices. And they've given a little bit more detail about the Duo. And what's exciting to me about it is they have set up a really good system for not having the phone suck out of the box. Yeah. Because no one is going to update their apps to work with the, the Microsoft Duo, except for Microsoft. Sorry. <laughs> um, but they are forcing every app to launch on one screen or the other, and not they won't let any app launch across span both screens. And that has to be a, a thing that a user consciously chooses to do, um, which means that like they don't have to solve, they don't have to get, they don't have to wait for developers to make good full screen apps. They just have to use what's already good right now, which are portrait apps. Um, the other thing I like about it is with the Galaxy Fold, when you do multitasking, you'd like slide this thing over from the side and then you'd like pick something from a list and then you'd like pick another thing and then it'd be a weird tile situation. It was a mess. With the Duo, they just like give you, uh, they use the basic multitasking view and then there's a big window, thumbnail of the window, and then you like drag it where you want it to go and you're done. So it it builds on your understanding of how to move stuff around in a much more learnable way than what we've seen on other Android tablets. Yeah. And I, I think their Microsoft's decision, and again, we we did talk to Panis about this on the Vergecast before, but they don't think the hardware of the folding screens is ready. They think two displays is the future. Here's a Phil Scott. And so I, I think they're correct to focus on how's the software going to work, right? Because everyone sort of agrees that the hardware is not ready. But yep. no one else is a software company the way Microsoft is. So they're they're chasing, like Samsung is going to have some wild ideas about how to use its unfolding screen, but they're going to be like Samsung software ideas, like you're gonna yep. un, you're gonna unfold the Galaxy Z Flip and the bottom screen is going to be Bixby, like it's just going to be a mess, right? We're, what are we're the what are the ideas is that the hinge is sturdy enough so that you can set it down at an angle so that you can do video calls without having to prop it up. That's pretty good. That's kind of clever, right? I'd buy it. Um, yeah. But that's like more about camera anyway. <laughs> Microsoft is like reasonably good at software, reasonably good at UI ideas, reasonably good at integrating that in your operating system and making the apps work. Like they've got that set of chops that I think most of the Android phone vendors do not. Fair. Right. So they're solving that problem. Here's my big question. Does solving that problem for two discrete displays map to now it's one display that folds in half? Yes. Okay. Why not? Well, because when you have one display that folds in half, when you open it, you only have, you really only have one display. 
So oh, automatically so, launching the apps on the left versus the right, like doesn't really do anything doesn't, for you. Doesn't do it. Doesn't it? Doesn't make sense. Okay, that's fair. Uh, I think they maybe by then they will have actually managed to get some developers to do what literally no Android developer has ever done in the history of Android, which is make good full screen Android. Apps. <laughs> Yeah, so, uh, if you're an Android the, developer, I don't mean you. I mean everybody else. You're cool. The <laughs> rest of the great. ecosystem yeah. is terrible. One of the canonical examples, and I remember this way back when uh, Google's first doing tablets, is this idea of like master detail. So like, uh, uh, think of a mess like your emails on an iPad. You have a list of messages on the left, and then, yep. then on the right, you have the message that's selected, yep. right? Um, and so there's this concept that if you have a narrow screen, you just see one of those at a time. You click on the message, then you see the message, then you click back and you see the list of messages. Yeah. And when you go wide into a tablet, now apps can magically have two panes simultaneously. That didn't work out for Android for whatever reason. Or maybe it did. I just didn't spend enough time with Android tablets. Uh, what, 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 because uh, I, I like, I think Microsoft is really smart in the sense of like, let's pretend it's kind of two phones and it's really easy to send apps across between them. But but these other ways of actually actively using both sides, is uh, do you think Microsoft's really solving anything there? I, I kind of do. How, I mean, how often... How often does anybody with, like, say, a, a Note or a Galaxy S10 Plus or whatever actually do split screen on those phones? Uh, probably not that much, but how often would you if you just had two screens and it was really easy to do? I think you'd do it a little bit more often, especially if the system for doing it was just a little bit more elegant the, and intuitive. The, the two apps at once thing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do think that's cool. So I saw Nadella using a Duo last week. And he just was the coolest man. He like pulled it out of his pocket. He was like, he was scrolling. I swear to God, he was doing it more animatedly just to like rub it in our faces. Like he was just like swiping. You could see that he was like on one screen on the other. That was great. Here's yeah. my question. All of this works if Microsoft gets into the market and they sell a lot of phones, right? It's a phone. It's supposed to yeah. replace your phone. And I am not 100% sure that they can tick all the other boxes of phone stuff that they need to do. For example, mostly what we talk about with phones now is the camera. Right. Right, and so like, can Microsoft go from zero to computational photography tomorrow? Right, I like mean, that, they, maybe they can't, they're micro. They I'm probably not they still can. have some of those old Nokia engineers hanging around, you know, <laughs> who made those great, the, those great Lumias back in the day. Like, she's like, finally, you guys. <laughs> I've been waiting. Here's a gigantic 40 megapixel camera sensor. It's called the Pure View. Let's just yeah. bolt that to the back of this. Uh, I hope so. That would be great. I, but th I think those are the open questions for Microsoft. Yeah. I think they, they're going to do better on the software side. And the thing looks compelling as hell because it is very thin when it's open, and I, that's just awesome. But to replace your phone, there's just a whole battery life. Yep. Right? Like, there's just a whole universe of things where, in particular, Apple and Samsung have gotten so good, uh, and Google it orbits them, I would say. <laughs> uh, Google's just had a bad year, y'all. It's, it's, it's like January 28th. <laughs> <laughs> like what's the date today? I, no, I meant since, I, I meant for, for the Pixel Four. Yeah, I forgot. Uh, I saw oh, like yeah. a deal on the Verge.com, like Pixel Four discounts. Like, oh yeah, they have a Pixel Four. <laughs> yeah. uh, I have a Pixel. Yeah. 
But like Google is very good at camera stuff. That was their wedge in. Are they good at the other stuff? Yep. They didn't quite get there yet. And that's why we keep dinging them. Can Microsoft catch up on all of those fronts and execute a very novel idea about phone interfaces on a very unique piece of hardware where the app ecosystem isn't just going to chase them? That is a big set of question marks. But I did see it, like, dude, using it, and it looked super cool. So, yeah. but I, I just think, like, we're going to, you should, everyone should be ready for, even though it is only January 23rd, be ready for, like, late November, early December, just the wave of local news voices being like, Motorola's back with a folding razor, and you won't believe this screen. Like, that's just going to be around you. Mm -hmm. Like, do you remember when we were at the Apple event? And we were watching, it was like the Today Show. It was Good Morning America, and they were talking about tips to improve your battery life. Do, do you remember? We were like in the hotel the morning. We were like getting ready to go to the airport, and it was just like on in the background. Okay. And all of their no. tips, like they were like, you don't need a new phone with great battery life. You could get better battery life right now by just turning your phone off. And it was like, I don't, <laughs> <laughs> you're not, I don't know that Americans are being helped by this at this point in time. But, like, that's – I think that's where we're going with the form factor stuff. The question is whether yeah. a consumer walking into the store with even an older iPhone, an iPhone 8 that has a reasonably good camera, is going to trade down or trade sideways instead of getting yeah. the thing they're always expecting. I do think that there is um, such a pent-up thirst for a small phone. Even if people, like, deep down don't actually want one, everyone thinks they want one. And depending on what Apple does with the next SE that's – sort of out there and rumored and how big that is, it's possible that these folding phones could pick up a bunch of people saying, you know, I just want a small phone that fits in my pocket. I don't care about the quality of the camera or this or that or the other thing. And so I'm getting the razor because I can actually put it in my pocket without it sticking out. Yeah. I, think, I mean, I, I, it depends on how you've seen it. No, Heim saw it. Yeah. It's like pretty, it's so wide, right? It's like a wide phone. Yeah, and the, the, the Galaxy Z Flip from the leaked photos also looks pretty wide. But, you know, I don't think it's, like, much wider than a phone phone, a regular old smartphone. I can't wait to get these things. I'm sorry. I'm so excited about them. All right, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. Literally, as we have been speaking, Sonos has provided a statement about its product. So we got to talk about that. We'll be right back. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. All right, Paul, every week, mm -hmm. you go in, you provide America the stability it so desperately requires. So, with a segment. Increasing desperation. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's called... It's, I don't know that it's working, but we're going to do it again. <laughs> it's called Express Card Never Died It Only Slept. Wow. Um, this is a, 
a false statement, um, but <laughs> it sounds good. No wonder America's falling apart, man. <laughs> so, um, so there's these new, like, alleged leaked photos of the Xbox Series X. I, I to be honest, I'm not, like, huge into leaked back panels of unreleased devices. It's not, like, s- totally my bag. Although I did, I did click on this, so maybe it is. Um, so... It, it, let's assume that this is a real photo of a real uh, like dev unit of the Xbox Series X. You got two uh, full-size uh, USB plugs, um, an Ethernet port, uh, SPDIF, and there's no power brick, right? Um, as far as I know. Anyway, I don't know. There's a power plug, right? But it's not it's not like the one in the back of your desktop PC. Um, and HDMI. But there's also this weird rectangular yeah. slot. Long slot. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so according to the the leaker, it's like a, it's for diagnostics, right? Because this is a dev unit. This isn't a real Xbox Series X. But what if it was Express Card? And I for people who maybe are a little younger don't remember Express Card. There was a time when oh. when when most laptops came with one, sometimes even two Express Card slots, and this was for ex- an expansion port. That was basically PCIe. Like you could plug in like a graphics card over this. Um, famously, they, they were perfectly timed so that there were a lot of these laptops that had Express Card slots, but were built before Wi-Fi was hot. So yep. a lot of people added Wi-Fi to their their laptops, and then later that. on put like LTE or three G cards. Um, anyways, I, you know, obviously Express Card is ridiculous for a modern thin laptop, but I'm just trying to visualize some good reason why uh, yeah exactly i have two questions here one what diagnostics are you running that you need a slot like a 50 pin connector <laughs> no <laughs> like okay fine uh and two what what are you connecting to an xbox that you need this slot because it's basically a pc so like why wouldn't you just like put a thunderbolt on it right because it's pc mcaa and so they it, it's it's easier to code to <laughs> than usb because you don't have to worry about drivers well like yeah. my first thought before i thought of express card is like you could put like a, an extra nvme drive basically basically what i want is unadulterated access to the motherboard like I don't yeah. want I don't want to go through Intel's proprietary bridge from from PCI to to um Thunderbolt. I just I want to plug straight in. Yeah. We just did 40 minutes of conversation about security and you're like I need hardware <laughs> access immediately. It's uh, it's the Vergecast we haven't mentioned it so I just I just want to point out that um that standard the express card standard PCMCA or whatever um it was the uh the spec that was used for um handspring visor modules and therefore it was the spec that the uh trios radio used to communicate with palm os that's pretty good yeah i buy it uh, at least on the first one didn't palm also make a big bet on on irda i mean that bet that that could still pay off you don't know like you could <laughs> it's still around <laughs> you could definitely like, walk up to another palm user and be like let me share my contact info with you and then like hit send ir signals at them oh look up a uh, number Look up Palm Train commercial. There's an amazing commercial where, like, uh, there's a, a, a man and woman on, like, opposite trains, and they, like, see each other, like, hey, you look you look pretty hot. And then, like, as the trains are leaving, they manage to beam each other their contact information yeah. over IR across trains. And, the then, and then TVs for miles around had their volumes turned down. <laughs> uh, okay. All right. Literally, as we were talking, 
the CEO sent us Patrick Spence sent a note to customers yep. saying they got it wrong and clarifying some things. Let's just, I want to zoom out of this semi breaking news. Huh, get it? Uh, and talk about wow. what's going on with Sonos. So a few weeks ago, there was uh, a controversy over Sonos's recycle mode. Yeah. Right? So if you have an old Sonos product, you want to trade up to a new one. Sonos has a trade-up program. You tell them that you want to trade them up. They'll give you a discount on a new thing, and then they will send a software command to your old thing that disables it from working. And then you are meant to take it to a recycle center, and they have a list of those. Or if you can't find one of those, you can mail it to Sonos, and they will recycle it. A uh, person who works at a recycling center said this is bullshit on Twitter, which is how most problems start. Um, <laughs> facts. These devices are bricked. The best way to actually get uh, use out of these things is to reuse them, is to put them back in the field. It's very hard to recycle everything. Sonos is just bricking devices because they don't want to use them. That I, was it like an, like an elision, right? It's like not quite true. You could just not participate in the recycle program. You could just leave your thing alone. It would keep working. You could just buy a new thing at full price and sell the old thing and, you know, recoup the difference. But if you took the recycle mode deal, then you would get a discount and your thing would be bricked. So, like, one option out of many. But Sonos was not actively, like, bricking stuff to get you to – but it's the internet, so people got confused. I will say it is not great that recycle mode involved this bricking of devices. Yeah. But that's what that's what it did. Okay, so that controversy is there. Sonos is, like, riding the wave. Then they announce the next thing, like, last week, which is, hey, our old devices, they're going to stop getting software updates in May because they're old. Yeah. Like, and, like, old all the way to, like, 13 years old, the first-generation Play 1, um, which is, like, between – depending on when you bought it, between, like, 8 and 5 years old. It's, so like, old, yeah. older things, not maybe as old as you want. And, like, only certain categories of them. So I have, like, a Sonos Connect that I bought, like, two years ago. Not affected. Yeah. The Sonos okay. Connect I bought, like, five years ago is affected. So there's even internal variations. They say, well, you're not going to get software updates anymore. We don't think our platform roadmap can support those devices. And, and this is, like, hidden because it's complicated. They don't think changes in streaming service SDKs can be supported on those devices. Got it. So is this a DRM problem? Is that what you're saying? I think it's no. Uh, my it's, my yeah. guess is like it's like a lossless music problem. It's like oh, a, it's like a streaming service gets bigger, more compute intensive, needs more RAM. Like, yeah, it's that problem. Uh, so, whatever the problem is, it sort of doesn't matter. Like consumer electronics, generally speaking, unless it's a like a PC or I don't know a TV. After five years, like there there are very few categories that still feel like they're good and continuing to get software updates and work as well as they did, right? Yeah. Like an iPhone five years at the outside, an Android phone five years in, like you, you should be on your fourth one by then. <laughs> yeah, an Android phone like 18 months in is a little shaky. Um, yeah. So everyone got this note from Sonos saying, hey, we're going to stop supporting the software. Importantly, everything's going to keep working. Everything will just keep working. It's just not going to get new features in the software. And yeah. if you have modern Sonos products, they won't get new features either because once you have a bunch of Sonos stuff in your ass, it all runs the same software. Right. So this is complicated. Everyone just sort of muddled this together as Sonos is going to brick our devices in May. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just 100% what happened because they, they mishandled the recycle mode controversy Everyone thought they were breaking devices, and they sent out this thing saying, hey, we're going to stop supporting the software on old devices, and everyone just assumed their devices would stop working. I got to say, we we really live in this world where stop supporting 
often does mean bricking. Like especially stuff that involves anything in the cloud. Um, and, and it is true that if you have uh, uh, Joe Brown, he's editor of Popular Science, he's like a friend of the Verge, friend of ours. Like, uh, he's like, I got like two or three thousand dollars on the Sonos stuff that like now has a clock on it. Like at some point now, I definitely know it'll stop working. Yeah. So they put out the statement today. I will quickly read it to you. It's just a text file on the internet, man. Just load. Oh, don't try and load uh, Sonos's web page. It's down. Like they can't, they their software can't run a web page, much less update older older devices. That's amazing. Okay. okay, so they put out a statement today. It's from Patrick Spence. He says, "We CEO sent us. We heard you. We did not get this right from the start. First, rest assured that come May, when we end new software updates for legacy products, they will continue to work as they do today. <laughs> that is in bold. Like yeah. they people are so convinced that Sonos is going to break their stuff that they're like in bold." We're, we're not breaking it. Actually, the next line is, we're not breaking them. We're not forcing <laughs> That's true. We're not forcing them obsolescence. We're not taking anything away. The thing, and then it goes on to say they're going to find a way to split Sonos. So if you have modern new stuff like a Sonos One, it can work independently of the old Sonos stuff. Probably right. not as seamlessly, but then you'll get updates, feature updates for the new stuff. Your old stuff keeps working. You are a little bit less great. And they say they're going to try to figure out some ways through that too. Okay. That's like the problem. I think they're doing the best they can with a bunch of 10-year-old hardware in the field. Yep. I think the problem is like what you identified, Dieter, what Paul was saying, people expect their speakers to last forever. And the second you put a computer in something, like the clock just starts ticking. And I think that is that is the whole problem with the smart home, right? Like most of the stuff in your home you expect to last forever. Speakers and stereos are one of those things that are part of your home, not so much part of like like, I have an amp at my house that is older than me. It's from 1974. Yeah. It works just fine. Like, it, it's great. I have a record player that's from 1994. It works just fine because it doesn't have any RAM in it. Right? <laughs> like, it's just like there's no there's no computer well, in there, and it's just going to work forever. Yeah, but it, it really is the – I mean, we're playing, we're playing MP3s still, basically. Uh, it, it is interesting. Like, I really wonder, like, at what point – is the codec an actual issue for them? No, but it's beyond the codec. Like, think about the actually the stack of software that need that you need to have a Sonos speaker run or any connected device. It needs a Wi-Fi radio. Wi-Fi from ten years ago is very much unlike Wi-Fi today, right? Like, it those things still have Wi-Fi like eight hundred two eleven B radios in them, so they're not like the greatest Wi-Fi products. They have to somehow mesh network with the new Sonos stuff that has new radios in it. If they want to improve the new stuff, they still have something that could backward compatible with the old stuff. And it still has to work with, you know, in another five years, are there are you even going to be able to buy a B router? Like, who knows? Yeah, if, right. I mean, if it wasn't the, the codec, it would be the Wi-Fi. If it wasn't the Wi-Fi, it would be, you know, degradation of the RAM or whatever. Like, it, it's going to be something. Computers just do not last that long the way that they are built in consumer electronics and the way the software works. So that's the Sonos story, and maybe I'm being an apologist because I, I think, A, I have a lot of other stuff. Um, B, I think, you know, a 10-year, they, they promise to support things for 10 years. They're just already longer than most things, right? So maybe I'm giving them, like, uh, I'm being a little too nice. But given that set of constraints, I think they're doing better than most other consumer electronics companies do. Like, Apple is not out there being like, our phones from 2010 are, like, still in the mix, 
Right. Hardly, hardly, but hardly anybody even tries. I guess what I'm, I'm trying to think of like, what sort of technologies could we embrace? Like if I'm buying something right now, Mm-hmm. Could I could I have a better opportunity other than just trusting a name brand like Sonos, who seems to have a good track record? What 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 are the sets of technologies that I have a better chance of it lasting for a long time? I, I've got a, I've got a, a very hot take that yeah. we we're gonna have to loop back to, but here we go. Uh, I blame Project Ara for all of this. <laughs> what is this? Dieter, remind everyone what Project Ara is. <laughs> Google tried to make a modular phone. Uh, and they way overpromised, and everyone made fun of it. And they're like, "This is dumb. This isn't going to work." And then turned out it was dumb, and it didn't work. And then they tried it again, and it continued to not work. And Samsung actually tried this with the, their TVs. They tried to put the computer in a box that went on the back, and uh, no one did it. No one bought it. And the solution, the like obvious solution to me, is you build a speaker that's designed to last fifty years. And you've got a, a computer that's designed to last five years, and there's no way to make a computer last longer right now. So just make sure that you can separate those things and put a new computer on it when you need to. Are you talking but, about decentralized open source communication protocols? No, I'm talking about <laughs> modularity. I'm talking about just make the gadgets a little more modular so that you can take the old part off that doesn't work anymore and replace it with a new one that works better. But we as an industry have decided that no, everything needs to be sealed and uh, unitary and beautiful and perfect. And yeah. Sonos, like played along and maybe it's dumb or mean of me to demand that Sonos realize that they should have made the computer part modular way back when. Um, but I don't know, man, we always knew, they always knew that speakers need to last longer. Uh, maybe it was naive for them to think that they could make the computers inside them last longer too. Yeah. And I, even their somewhat modular products like the amp or the connect amp, like that, the kit older version of the amp, which is like you plug your own. It is modular, right? You like mm-hmm. plug speakers into it. Well, that's on the list. And I'm sure the power amp inside the amp, the actual amplifier, works fine. It's the yep. computer that went bad, and you can't replace that. Right. But like, is anybody going to do that? No, that's the thing. It's like it, it's it. I my dream is that people this will wake everybody up, and I fix it will win, and we'll get modular stuff everywhere, and batteries will become replaceable again, and like yeah, yeah. like none of that's happening um, because they're a is apparently no consumer demand for it. There's consumer outrage on the back end, but connecting that consumer outrage to consumer demand for things that are actually modular in the first place, I don't know that we're going to see that happen. So let me I, let me paint a much I'm, more negative picture. Just, just, a, just a little bit of optimism. I imagine there are enough people who have been burned by their phone having degrading battery life like once or twice now. It's like, wow, even when I took really good care of that phone, it got really, really bad at battery life and I couldn't replace it. And that was frustrating that a product with re- a, a replaceable battery is a strong selling point if if someone can offer that. Maybe. Maybe. But, you know, your phone has degrading battery life and Apple's throwing on a processor and they're like, there's a weird explanation for why. Like, you can get your battery replaced still, right? And you see the performance decrease and you're like, my phone got slow. It's time for a new phone. Or I'm aware that I can replace the battery. I'm going to do it. If you have a bunch of like speakers or I think way more dystopian is like smart home stuff. Yeah. Like my thermostat is going to stop getting software up. Like it's like very obvious, right? Like it was the first thing I thought of is like I have a Nest thermostat. It does its job every day. It turns the heat on and off and I can look at the status of it from my phone. I do not need it to do anything more than that. 
at some point, Nest is going to say this processor is too slow. The Wi-Fi radios are out of date. And I'm going to be forced to buy a new thermostat in a way that literally Nest promised was thermostats have not been redesigned or replaced in 60 years. Like that was their yeah. selling point. That's like Tony Fidel said to me. And now yeah. I'm like every five years I got to buy a new thermostat because like it's a computer and your web service needs wants to communicate to it differently. People who are installing smart plugs in their walls right now, I, I, what is going to happen to you? We keep yeah. talking about Z-Wave and Zigbee. It's like everyone who's buying one like stuff on one of those protocols right now, and then this new thing happens. It's like IP-based Zigbee, weird thing that's out in the world. And all those manufacturers are like, we support this now. And like you're just – I've got a smart home full of Z-Wave stuff, and they failed. Like I, that – I don't know how you connect that consumer demand to modularity or whatever because you're not, you're not going to go around to all your smart plugs and be like, I'm going to replace this radio. You're just going to throw yeah. it away. Yeah. And like I don't know, that – the Sonos thing to me is like just – it's the first blip of people being extremely unhappy about things they perceive to be part of their home going obsolete for computer reasons. Because you right. take these computer reasons and you apply them to standard computer stuff. Like I bought – I mean like what's a classic thing? Like uh, you built your own PC and you buy a new GPU for it and you can't get the full performance out of the GPU because you don't have the right motherboard. So then you kind of end up buying – and like by the end of it, you've built a whole new PC, right? Like yeah. that happens to people all the time. And that's just sort of like accept it. Here it's like, yeah, I got to tear down my house I think because <laughs> like <laughs> – uh, that to me, I though like we're so used to computer. What is the show about? This is Dieter has a, a newsletter about computers. This is a podcast about computer problems, right? And like we we know what they're like. We 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 know about the security issues. You start applying that stuff to toasters and plug outlets and lights. Like the one thing that we never talk about is like all that stuff goes bad. The yeah. company goes out of business, or they want to change the the communications protocol it uses or the API changes and that stuff goes away. And in computer world, that means I'll just buy a new one. I get it. In house world, it means I'm extraordinarily mad at you and you're going to issue an apology that is basically we're doing what we said we were going to do. We're just saying it calmly, which yeah. is what this apology is. And that's as, as best as you can do. But I mean, the question is, uh, do you just nope out, right? Do you, do you, well, I'm never buying a smart speaker and ha ha, I told you also, ha ha. Like I, I don't like that answer either um but maybe i don't know it's i, I just think <laughs> i think there's there's an optimism in that there are a lot of technical ways to solve these things like making things modular and like there's nothing really it's not like with fit like physics are what keep us from you know being able to run you know Fortnite at at 4k on our on our phones at 120 frames per second you know but there's no like real limitations like that that really stop. It's more of like a willpower. Like there needs to be a demand. And I saw this really interesting headline with um, uh, it wasn't the headline, but you know, Adobe is is teasing this uh, a Premiere Pro uh, collaborative editing thing, mm -hmm. and uh, this is for you know film production, which has a a, a very important secrecy component. So you don't always want film editors to be connected to the internet. And so one of their selling points is nothing, nothing is on the cloud unless you put it there, says Adobe. So it's like, it's, you know, when, when you need to do, I mean, this is networked computing. Like this is serious stuff. It just doesn't have to use the internet because it's not, act, not actually a technical requirement of the, of the solution. Yeah. And because there is demand, they can eat. I mean, I don't know about easily, but they are filling that demand. And a, a no internet required solution for 
something that for most of us, like we don't know typically how to edit documents collaboratively without using Google Docs or something else that's on the web, but they can figure this out for video editing because there was a demand for it. We figured it out in 2002. Was it Sub-Etha Ed? Yeah, yeah oh my God. Uh, I think, that, Paul, you're correct. I mean, it's just like the Amazon's business model does not allow you to not be connected to their server, right? Like they're going to sell you cheap Echo speakers and hope that they make the money up on Alexa over time. How they're going to do it, we still don't know. Mostly, so far as it appears that like Alexa screams at you about Black Friday from time to time, like that is the commercial relationship I have with that product. Apparently, they upsell you on Amazon Music. Wow. Yeah. 55 million subscribers, man. I right. Was but not like, aware that means that like that the was... amount of cheap hardware in your life is just like going up because they're all making it up on services. Yeah. And so, yeah, like, but, but then the cheap hardware harms you. Yeah. And then you get some more cheap hardware and that harms you too. And then at some point, you're like, you know what? This cheap hardware keeps on harming me. And I think, I'm yeah, but then there's like a new a generation solution. of teens. Like your, your well, market knowledge is not well, translate. You don't think the it's teens like are going to listen to me when I tell them that the cheap hardware will harm them? I'm just saying. Welcome to my TikTok channel. Oh my God. Yes. Paul's cheap hardware TikTok channel. Let me tell you why this $30 Google Home is actually a threat to democracy. Gather around, children. <laughs> All right. We're going to end it there. We've been going for a while. I feel like we were going to. Maybe talk about. I was just gonna yell about Comcast for a while, but I, I, I can't. Just assume. Just assume that Eli has yelled about Comcast. Here, I'm just gonna say it. Preceded by a, a, a clarifying. Uh, Comcast said two. Th- yeah, <laughs> Comcast. Comcast investor in Vox Media, Jones and Verge. Uh, their earnings came out, and they said uh, one, they're raising prices on cable subscribers. Yeah. Uh, which is amazing. Two, their CapEx, their investment in the network, has gone down by 10%, which is the exact opposite thing people said would happen uh, when net neutrality went away. It was pro- as you probably promised that CapEx would go up, Comcast CapEx go down. And then three, they said, we stand to make more money in streaming than anyone uh, with their new Peacock service. And the, and the, the reason is because they can bundle it with the internet service they own and then excuse it from data caps. It's, it's the nightmare. I, yeah. I told you. I told you so. Okay, that's the Vergecast. <laughs> I told you so. <laughs> Rock and roll. <laughs> it's Paul. Paul. No, it's everything's great. Thank you for listening. I appreciate you. Goodbye. Thanks to Canva for their support. Canva wants to make your presentations come as easy as those thoughts that pass through your head. And thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work.